Your lips can do a whole lot more than kiss. Your lips express love and speak your truth. Plump your lips with Juvederm Volbella XE or Juvederm Ultra XE for natural-looking results that are completely and uniquely you. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XE or Juvederm Ultra XE. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Welcome to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli. The Everyday Warrior concept is a no-hack, practical approach to living a fulfilling, purpose-driven life. The Everyday Warrior philosophy was actually built through my personal observations of high performers throughout my 20-year career in U.S. Special Operations. These high performers, much like you and I, are all battling something, but it doesn't change our desire for continual growth in the ability to achieve and sustain optimal performance. On the Everyday Warrior podcast, we seek out in-depth conversations from a multitude of industries or professions to discuss their failures, darkest moments, and of course, their time-tested principles or positive habits that have led them to success so that you and I may learn from them and accelerate our own journeys to attain success as well. In today's episode, we have a great guest, a role model for many men and women in their late 30s and beyond. He is freshly back from the ski slopes of Beijing, where he became Jamaica's first Olympic alpine skier. The 38-year-old, who's a former international DJ and investment baker, only discovered his passion for the sport at the age of 32, after a fortuitous encounter with his friends. His story is uplifting and inspiring, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Benjamin Alexander. Benjamin, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I survived the Squid Games of Beijing 2022. <laughs> okay, okay, and we're going to get into that. I, I think there's a lot of inquiring minds of what was it, what was it like uh, in the Olympic Village, and what was it like, uh, you know, doing the games in in China. But before we get there, let's get into your life story because this is an interesting one. From uh, you know, UK based, uh, your mother's British, your father is Jamaican, uh, you know, from school to wealth management, to being an DJ, uh, give us, give us the, uh, the background, sort of your, your upbringing and, and what brought you to this point. So it's all over the place. So as you said, born and raised just outside of London, UK to a Jamaican father and a British mother, um, grew up in a working class background. Both of my parents either spent their entire working life in a factory or in a driving role. Um, had no exposure to the sport of skiing. Uh, as a child, in fact, the first time I ever jumped on an airplane was at the age of 19, but I've done a lot of catching up. I've been to over 70 countries in the world now. Um, as you said, finished school in London with an electronic engineering degree, uh, ended up in finance. Finance was the major brain drain for all of the kind of science and engineering disciplines back then. Now it's obviously tech. Um, I moved out to Asia. While in Asia working in finance, I kind of picked up an old ho hobby. I started DJing 22 years ago, February of the year 2000. 
and <clears throat> started doing this casually for friends on boat parties and after parties. And all of a sudden got picked up by the best club in Hong Kong and did the, committed the cardinal sin of giving up my day job to pursue what I could do musically with my DJ career. That went pretty well. I spent 10 years on the road as an international DJ. I played across five continents in over 30 countries. Uh, and it took me into some incredible situations I would never have been otherwise. One of them was to a heli ski lodge in British Columbia, Canada. Now I remember very specifically on December 23rd of 2015, when I saw my friends plonk on their powder skis and just disappear off the ridgeline. And I thought this was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. My friends had just turned into superheroes in that very moment in my eyes. And I kind of decided there and then that I wouldn't come back to this heli ski trip unless I was one of the skiers. So two months later, I was invited to DJ at a, uh, uh, another ski party in Whistler. And it's almost exactly six years ago to the day when I had that first lesson. Now, being a mixed race individual, um, you always represent the minority of any room you're in at any given moment in time. That can change from second to second. So with my white friends, I'm the black guy. And with my black friends, I'm the white guy. Or Carlton from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, if you may remember. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, by, by the early 2018, I got good enough to kind of keep up with my friends. And as I said, being the black representative and being of Jamaican heritage, people would always talk about cool runnings, as you've just said, yeah. the Jamaican boxer yeah. team, and you should go to the Olympics. And I guess I just took that a little bit too seriously. 2018, I went as a spectator and realized there were only three athletes representing Jamaica, which we all know is a powerhouse in the summer games. And the kernel of an idea was formed then. Now, bearing in mind, I'd only skied 15 days at this time. It was kind of an outlandish kernel of an idea, but I pursued it. I skied across to Japan. I skied across Patagonia, chasing snow thousands of miles uh, by myself. And at the end of 2018, I, I retired as a DJ and decided what would be the next crazy thing for me to do in my life. Um, and from the beginning of that year, I've been on this mission to get to the Olympics. And last Sunday, I made history as Jamaica's first ever alpine ski racer. I'm starting to pick up here. You, you know, it sounds like you've got this this attribute of your your your, your personality where you just identify something and you're like, screw it, I'm gonna I'm gonna go full in on that, not look back and, and do it. I mean, now I'm looking at you left wealth management where I'm sure you were doing extremely well into a a, a job role being a DJ, international DJ, which it, it you've got to grind within that industry. I'm sure before you start getting paid well. Yeah. And then you saw skiing and you're like, screw it, I'm going to do that and I'm going to represent uh, my nation, Jamaica. Yeah. Where, where does yeah. that come from? Is it, it, does that come from your parents? Where, where did you learn that specific attribute? You know, the irony of it is, I think it comes from being wanting to do the opposite of our parents. Many of us have incredible parents that we want to follow. And many of us have incredible parents that have a life that seems too bland and too boring for us to ever get stuck in. My parents are still beautifully in love 45 years later. They are inseparable, but they're also very, yeah, they're also very conservative people, very risk averse. And I felt you know, from a young age, I always wanted to be a little bit different to my father. Um, coming from an engineering background, I always look at risk through a very different lens to other people. You know, when I finished university, I packed up my bags and I had just the carry-on suitcase and about $400 in my bank account when I moved to Thailand. And everyone asked me, like, you're absolutely crazy. What are you going to do out there? And I said, I'll figure it out. Ended up spending 10 years of my adult life in Asia. But I knew that the worst case scenario was to find a way back to England and then try something else outlandish and crazy. And I think a lot of people just kind of get stuck in the rut of comfort and, and being comfortable, and it doesn't allow them to take risks to, to kind of excel and do higher and greater things. I'm sure that risk is no more scary for you than it would be just us, us average Joes. What is it in particular that 
it sounds like you've developed a system to you know mitigate the risk and then just take that leap. What what have you sort of codified that for yourself? Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't even say it's risk mitigation. It's looking at risk through a different lens, right? So when I did the cardinal sin of committing, uh, you know, the committed the cardinal sin of giving up my day job, your brain is always there. If you've spent five years in finance and you go disappear for a couple of years to DJ and it doesn't work out, that finance job is always waiting for you. Yes, there'll be some pain financially through the tough times, but the finance job is always there, just the same way how England was going to always be there if it didn't work out for me in Asia. And I think people just get stuck in, in comfort, comfortable situations. So when I retired from being a DJ at the end of 2018, I made this big Facebook post just to thank everyone that had helped me along my way. And all of my friends, again, were saying, you're absolutely crazy. You can get thousands of dollars for playing an hour's worth of music all around the world. Why would you just not do that until you figure the next thing out? And for me, I didn't want to get comfortable in the situation of being a DJ and then all of a sudden wake up in my mid-40s, early 50s and still be the guy that's entertaining 25-year-olds in a nightclub. Sometimes you have to rip the Band-Aid off. Or as Sun Tzu says in The Art of War, if you are a general and you are about to invade an island, burn the boats behind the soldiers so they know the only way for success, for survival, is to actually win that battle. If you have an easy way out, people naturally gravitate towards that. And I talk about this with regards to a a simple analogy that everyone can can kind of uh, understand. If we make a commitment to ourselves to spend the next month of our life without alcohol, but we don't tell anyone else, By day five or day six, or by the time we get to the next weekend, we may start to negotiate with ourselves and we'll find a way to kind of renege on that promise to ourselves. And maybe we'll do it next month, right? But if you publicly state that goal, and that could be just like writing on a piece of paper on the fridge that you see every morning or posting on Facebook or putting somewhere in your place of work, now you're publicly accountable. And for me, I've learned that my word is something that's incredibly valuable to me. So I put my crazy outlandish ideas out there in the public realm so that if I fail or if I renege on it, then it's my word that I'm actually reneging on and my word that I'm hurting. So I haven't codified it as such, but I find that these are the kind of little hacks that I've found to make it work for me. I wouldn't even call them hacks. I would, it's just a system you've developed. And it's funny you say that. You know, my, my best friend happens to you know, be my wife. And, and we will verbalize our goals and it's, it's, we're yeah. telling each other like, Hey, keep me accountable. The other thing that may land me in the loony bin is if somebody came into my house and saw the mirror in our bathroom, cause it's just <laughs> markers everywhere from health to business goals. Um, but you know, you bring up, a this is where you're, you're just so damn impressive because for 99% of humans, I mean, you look at entrepreneurship. Uh, I think the last statistic I saw was nine out of 10 good ideas never make it to the market because people can't get out of the ideation phase and into the actual execution. With that, you brought up failure. A lot of people fear failure. What does failure mean to you? That's a really interesting one. And there are ways of changing it. You can fail all the time, but fail towards your goal, right? So it's about framing these things. I'll give you an example. When the world shut down, um, and, you know, I'm an avid skier. This was during my path to becoming an Olympic skier. I was faced with an option. Do I stop skiing or do I turn into, do I click over to backcountry skiing? And I just set myself these 
completely arbitrary goals that mean nothing. So for example, I might set my goal of, I want to climb 30,000 vertical feet. Why 30,000? Because it's the height of Mount Everest, right? You just, and you choose kind of visual reference points that you can keep climbing towards. And when you've hit one Mount Everest, then you set the next goal of, you know, maybe two or three. And eventually I did 10 actually. But the goal that I'd set, the overarching goal was to do 100 consecutive days of skiing that I'd never done in my life. And, and that's a lot of work when you're having to climb the mountains manually. So look, we all fail right? But we all fail in different ways. And I think the important thing that we're trying to kind of drill down on here in this conversation is the important thing is the way that the perspective that you have to look at failure. I failed many times in my life, but some of the best things have come off of the back of a failure because I've had a perspective or a paradigm shift. And that's what's really important, perspective. The word failure is, I say, hey, you don't fail. You either win or you learn. But one of your your, your countrymen, he's also uh, uh, Nepalese, is uh, uh, Nims Day, if you've heard that name before. He was just famous yeah. for the 14 Peaks. Uh, amazing individual, but he had a quote, and I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to do justice to the quote. He's basically <laughs> said, in essence, every step has taken him somewhere. Not every step was forward, somewhere back, but every step has led him to where he's at now. And arguably, he is a high-performing individual, much like you. Let's get into the Olympics. First off, you know, you literally just finished and I want, cause we talked before we started the show, you left Beijing and went right back to Jackson hole and started uh, skiing again. Uh, that is amazing. That is someone who's, who's uh, definitely has a passion for the sport, but what were the feelings coming off the, uh, the Olympics? Oh, I mean, I don't know if it's fully sunk in, you know, people call me the, you know, an Olympian. That's a, that's a badge that I'll have for the rest of my life. And I truly don't know if it's sunk in. It was such an incredible experience to be out there and to compete, to compete alongside some of the best in the world. And I don't even include myself in that category. For me, it was about the participatory element of, of the Olympics, right? Bringing Jamaica into a new field, being the first ever Alpine ski racer. But, you know, being a part of that opening ceremony, being the flag bearer for Jamaica, I mean, what other what other country has such a heritage and history with the Olympics? It's just such an honor. Um, you know, it all happened so fast as well. Immediately after the race, I had to pack my bags and and get out of Dodge, and so that was just all such a such a cluster. And I landed into a welcoming welcoming party here in Jackson Hole, which was incredible. Thirty friends met me at the airport, and then another fifty were at the house, and we just kind of. Hard until the sun came up, shall we say? <laughs> yeah, well, first off, you're in a great place. Jackson Hole is absolutely gorgeous, man. Uh, I wish we, uh, I was there with you right now. Um, so you you finished 46 out of 46 skiers that finished. Now another 40 didn't yeah. finish because there was a, just a horrid storm. Talk talk through that. I mean, you, if the storm was there, do you think you would have been uh, a little more competitive uh, amongst the uh, the 46? And what was your ultimate goal? What, I mean, so yes, you're playing catch up very much. You have not had as much time in the sport as a lot of these people who've probably been doing it since they were four. What was the ultimate goal for you in representing Jamaica in these uh, these Olympic Games? Yeah, breaking new ground. So the majority of my competitors have been skiing since the age of 18 months and ski racing since sometimes as young as four years old. And now here they are, 28 years old, at the peak of their strength and athletic ability with their national ski federation putting millions of dollars into their advancement each and every year you know those guys are in formula one and we're playing around with go-karts in the back so there's two tiers of what's going on in the olympics you have those incredible high performance athletes who are the top 30 in the world and then you have the representation element where the international olympic committee wants as many countries as possible to participate in the games for me my goal was to finish 
I had zero care as it pertained to my time and I'd rather be super slow, but at least put a rung on the board with a finish. And I think a lot of my friends who also represent small nations and many of them representing small nations for the first time didn't understand that we're not out there to race. We're not there to compete. We're there to do our country proud and to, and to finish. So yeah, the conditions were horrendous. Um, you know, Yang Qing on average gets less snow than London, England. <laughs> so the entire facility was completely man-made. But on my day and on my day only of the entire Olympics, they had the biggest dump of snow they'd had in eight years and they just weren't ready for it. So for the listeners that are not familiar with ski racing, what we are competing on is basically closer to an ice skating rink, but at a 40 degree pitch than it is to what you might go and casually ski on. And so when there's new snow, that creates a very inconsistent and dangerous surface. Our equipment is not made to go through, you know, piles of snow. And so what happens is you have the, you know, the icy kind of racing line. And then right beside that line, you have a bank of snow, which is incredible, incredibly dangerous. It's almost as if you were going down a country road and you weren't paying attention. And all of a sudden, two of those road, two of those wheels are off the tarmac and on the gravel. Mm-hmm. You can get yourself in a really dangerous, hairy situation pretty quickly. And that's kind of a good analogy for what it's like trying to ski in those conditions with big snow banks at the side. I, I know within those environments, it's highly competitive. Uh, how was the reaction of the Olympic ski community towards you knowing the experience base you were coming in with, were they supportive, dismissive? How, how did that go down? Yeah, incredibly polarized. So the way the Olympics works, there are 10 countries that have just swept the medals up for the last, you know, forever and a day. And then you have the other 190 flags that are represented in the summer games that either don't come to the winter games. There are only 85 flags in the summer, in the winter games, which is a big thing that needs to be changed. Um, and so you've got the 10, 10 elite countries that are not happy about more countries coming in. It's almost like an immigration issue, right? They took our jobs. Then you've got the other 190 countries that are just like, this is amazing. And look, this is the long game. Me coming, um, you know, making it down the hill and all of these new countries being represented for the first time means that my sport, my discipline had an extra 100,000, 500,000 million extra eyeballs. Those eyeballs translate into dollars as it pertains to sponsors and a rising tide rises all ships. So, you know, the 10 countries that are upset about the additional participation are very, very short sighted or are just trying to keen to hold, you know, as much of the pie as they want for themselves. But look, out of being on the side of 10 countries or 190, I know which side I'll be on every day. Yeah, I would say that's not in uh, accordance with the spirit of the uh, the games. It's it's meant to, right. to have representation from all countries. Uh, no, there's been some real horror stories sort of about the, the, the isolation and living within the Olympic uh, village in Beijing. Give us your thoughts on that experience. Well, look, first of all, you get off the plane and you're greeted by a half a dozen people in hazmat suits and you realize this is what you're going into. So the Beijing Olympics were operated under a closed loop system, very similar to how the NBA playoffs operated last year. No one in, no one out, incredibly controlled. I've had a bit of experience in event organization. We do the big, we throw the biggest parties at Burning Man and uh, each year and we run festivals. I understand how complicated it was for them, but it really felt like Squid Games. You know, all of the staff are full on hazmats, And you might be walking down the corridor in the dorm room, which is very similar to kind of like a a new fancy high tech college dorm. And all of a sudden, one of the rooms beside you is completely empty and there's just five five people in there spraying disinfectant. Obviously, that person has just tested positive and they've been yanked out into into isolation. You know, what made it really challenging 
is that the athletes themselves were also being very cautious of interacting with other people. You know, imagine you spent your whole life to build towards this moment, and then just because of a chance encounter, you test positive for COVID and you're not able to compete. I myself had the gift of uh, COVID, pretty sure it was Omicron over Christmas. So I felt pretty bulletproof. I was going around trying to get into as much trouble as possible, licking doorknobs and, you know, all of that good stuff. <laughs> Dad, did you host any parties? Did you DJ any parties? We, uh, we tried. We really tried. But look, there was nothing, absolutely nothing going on. And the old hands who had been to multiple Olympics, especially the coaches that were on their fifth, sixth and seventh, were just so bored and keen to get out of there. Um, look, but if we look at it and zoom out, I would rather have those Olympics than no Olympics, right? We still yes. had the opportunity to get 80 countries together and, comp and, and compete under friendly circumstances. And that is the joy and the, and the spirit of the Olympics. So I'm happy that it happened. I wish it could have been more like a normal Olympics with all of the fun. And of course, I would have loved to have DJs and DJed and brought some other my artist friends in. And I would have had at least 100 people come and, and, and party with me. But we didn't have that. And it is what it is. So from what I'm understanding, it was the consensus most of the athletes were, were taken off the second they, their competition was done rather than stick around for the, yeah. uh, the closing games or ceremony? Yeah, so like, uh, like in Tokyo, they're asking everyone to leave 48 hours after. Um, I think I left eight hours after my event. There just really wasn't anything going on. Yeah, un un understood. Now, do you have any plans to go back to, uh, to Jamaica anytime soon? Yes, that's coming up in about two weeks' time. We're just putting together a little roadshow so that hopefully I can have a you know an audience with the prime minister. Hopefully I can go meet Usain Bolt and Shelly Ann Fraser-Price and all those superstars from the track and field side of our sport. And I'm so excited. I was in Jamaica for four months two years ago, and I really had the hero's welcome just as an aspirational qualifier for the Olympics. I can't wait to see how happy they are to receive me on this uh, on this trip. I know you have some aspirations to drive Jamaica forward within to, to, to become a future competitor within the uh, the Winter Games. And we'll get back to that. I want to take a, a quick uh, break but before we do we have something we call the hard questions hey you know again this vulnerability uh, we're all about it I, I think it's the most masculine thing that people can do um, so the hard question first one hardest decision you ever had to make uh, you know maybe to keep going over the last 24 months 17 months I had no access to competition I had no access to races and for most of the, for, for a big chunk of those, I didn't have access to skiing. And at some point, as a logical minded person, you say, am I just continuing to hit, it, hit my head against this brick wall? Is there no light at the end of this tunnel? And I really felt like giving up 20 times each month. Um, so the hardest decision was just to persevere. And here I am now. So definitely it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. The hardest regret you live with. I mean, look. I have had a very interesting life. I knew that I could have been like my friends where I could have left university and joined a, an entity like Goldman Sachs and just be making killer cash right now. And my parents could have retired 10 years earlier and you know, could have bought them houses and, and, and paid. And from that point of view, maybe I feel a little bit selfish. Um, but they're happy and they're good. And I, I always think about that. It's also part of the reason why I retired from DJing. I felt like I was wasting my brain. I felt like I wasn't doing the things that I was you know, destined to do. Hardest thing you've ever had to face. That's a real tough one. Can we do it after the break? We, we can absolutely <laughs> do it. With that, hey, we'll be right back. And welcome back. I've got Benjamin Alexander, who just finished up representing Jamaica in the winter Beijing uh, Olympics. Uh, we talked about his background, which is uh, 
Benjamin, you've you've got a unique story, man, uh, and and you've chosen experience over money. And I know we were talking about your friends at, at Goldman Sachs. You know what? Money is a is a goal for some people, and and maybe that provides them them wealth. I for me, I I haven't found that. Um, you know, I, I've got a few companies. It, it's experiences. It's life experiences. Because you can't bring your money with you when you uh, you die, but you you know you're sitting on your uh, your deathbed, and I just skydived into uh, to the Mount Everest region. I will never forget that most wow. spiritual uh, experience I've I've ever had. And then serving in the SEAL teams, uh, I feel fortunate just to have you know served with high performers uh, such as yourself. Well, we all know we don't get here on our own, and for people that think they do, uh, that's wildly uh, uh, I'd say selfish. Uh, I know one of your uh, mentors is Dudley Stokes, which again, I go back to that cool runnings and uh, absolute stud himself. How did you meet him and how did that relationship development develop and, and really what has he taught you? How do he prep you for these games? Yeah, right. So first of all, Dudley hosted a live stream of the movie Cool Runnings where he was kind of giving a behind the scenes and have that movie being such a you know, monumental part of my childhood, one of the few things that I could grab onto from my Jamaican heritage and just such a cool cult movie. I assumed there'd be a couple of thousand people in there. When I logged in, there were only 20. And I went into that live stream with one goal and one goal alone was to get Dudley to say my name and to say a few words of advice. And I would screen capture it and I would put together a video and just say, you know, the legend himself said something. I'd also been out skiing on the Teton Pass that day wearing an Amazon bought uh, copy of the 1988 Jamaican bobsled onesie, right? So I had some great footage to put put together. And I did. I got him to say, Benjamin Alexander wants to represent Jamaica in skiing. You're going to have to have the ability to suffer and have determination and to struggle to persevere. And I put together a little, uh, you know, one minute Instagram video that I posted and it captured his attention. You know, he reached out to me. He said, anyone can make a video. Let's uh, Let's jump on a phone call for five minutes. And he really didn't have any patience. We spent three hours on that first call. He was really excited by the way that I was looking at this project and the reasons I had for doing this project. And at the end of the call, he asked me, can I please be a part of this more formally? Can we please set up a a weekly call of sorts to help you through? Now, what Dudley has done for me, having someone who basically wrote the book for doing outlandish things for, you know, non-winter nations, but at the winter games is incredible. Having someone that's has, that has that expertise, he went to four games himself as, a, as, a, as an athlete and then many more as a coach or involved with the Jamaican Bobsled Federation. You know, this is a very specific domain knowledge that you're not going to find in many places. So having the ability to phone him and just ask him my thoughts and ask him um, you know, whether I was crazy to continue, as I said, when I struggled all the way through last year, was incredible. It turned into more of like a, a psychiatrist slash mentor role. Most of the phone call would be me just kind of yapping on and him kind of giving me some word, wise, words of wisdom afterwards. But also more importantly, and I think a lot, a lot of the younger athletes don't understand this part of the world, from a marketing point of view, it validated what I was doing. The fact that someone who had done that before was investing his time in helping me showed that what I was doing was worthy of people's attention. Um, So it was an incredible addition to my team. And I've been speaking to Dudley now for almost two years. uh, And he's just great. We speak every week, sometimes every day when it's crunch time. He's he's great. That's a we are all a product of of our coaches and mentors. Uh, That's just a, a life truth. When you were growing up, did you have an athletic background? 
No, really not. I was kind of, you know, one of those jack of all trades kids where I could be pretty good at anything and get to a really decent level, but was never that amazing athlete. I think we've all had this experience where you meet your maker, where you think you're good at something, and then you just meet someone that just shows you there's another level or a level above that or a level above where you'll ever get to, and then you have to make a decision. Do I keep persevering or do I try something else? And for me, that was at the age of 11, meeting a kid called Jonathan Buers, who went on to start for the England team. And I thought I was pretty good at football until I met this guy. <laughs> story, story of my life, man. I've, I've always surrounded myself with people that are uh, way better at me than uh, than most. But hey, that's that's the old Proverbs quote. Iron sharpens iron is uh, so is one man sharpens another man. If you surround yourself with people that are better than you, that have a higher bar, eventually you move towards that uh, that bar. Yeah. So this is insane. You started skiing six years ago. You just competed in the Olympics. I, I'm interested in what your daily regimen was, especially as you got closer to the Olympics. What was your diet? What was your workout plan? How many hours were you getting in uh, skiing? What, what did that look like for the, uh, the listeners? Yeah. So look, alpine ski racing is an incredibly technical sport that requires, as we said earlier, years, if not decades to get to where those guys are at. And so my predominant focus was to spend as much time as possible on snow, right? To try to catch up with them, to be uh, as technical as they are. In the times when I couldn't get to snow, to, uh, to snow, skiing is also about flexibility, hip flexibility in particular, mobility, and it's about two areas of strength, core and legs. When you're making a turn on an icy course, you have 90% of your weight on one leg. You basically need to be able to squat, double your body weight because of the gravity forces, the centripetal forces on each leg. And so you look at some of these female races where you can really notice it they have huge quads and huge glutes. And so for ski racers, that's what it's all about. As it pertains to diet, I often joke that uh, for the last two years, I've been on the seafood diet. Anything I see, I eat. Um, obviously, with gravity sports, the more weight we have, the faster we get pulled down that mountain. But it's just really important to be heavy on the protein. Um, fortunately, ski racing is not one of those sports like a cardio intense sport that is so dependent on you having the optimum fuel and the optimum uh, you know, diet. Uh, so I was kind of lucky with that. So in particular for the workouts, I mean, you were focusing, did you have a trainer? Were you focusing predominantly on leg strength, squats, uh, deadlifts, things exactly. along those lines? All of those things, yeah. you know, I, was, I moved around the globe to make this dream a reality. So a lot of the time I was doing stuff by myself. Another thing we work a lot on is, is speed and hand and, and coordination. So when you're kind of running up and down the ladder and just kind of having fast feet um, is also a really important uh, attribute for ski racers. I tried my hardest to get every single day on snow. Um, I ski 450 days out of the last two years. And the only reason that number isn't closer to 700 is because I could not get into the Southern Hemisphere because of COVID. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, I feel like I just got this thing over the line by the skin of my teeth, as we would say. But uh, it, it makes for all the better story. Right. And I've had a documentary film crew follow me around for the last 14 months across eight countries. So, you know, look out for that in the future as well. Give us a timeline on that. What are you thinking? Year, two years? Hopefully the end of this year. We'll see. Um, we, should, we shall see. I mean, it's out of my control. We'll see how quickly they, they turn things around. But look, for anything in life, one of the things I have learned is that I always used to be the guy that never wanted to take photos of things, never want to take videos, yeah. feeling like it would remove me from living in the moment. But honestly, even taking a blurry photo of something just in the moment and just putting the phone away 
helps you jog your memory. And there are so many photos that I look back at over the last two years that I completely forgot about. So having that film crew with me and documenting these things in high definition in all of its glory is something that I'll have with me for the rest of my life. And I'm just so happy it happened. Benjamin, I, I've got to agree with you. One, we had a documentary film crew for the uh, expedition uh, to, to Everest. And you know, coming from the special operations community, you, you want to remain as a quiet professional, not a silent professional, a quiet professional. And there was just this... Bad. It just was. I had an allergic reaction to it. But uh, great mentors. Uh, you know, a former chief marketing officer, uh, very uh, successful in his own right. Uh, he's like, Mike, you got to do this, man. He's like, it's not about you. It's it's about the person that watches it yeah. and may be impacted by your story. May be motivated to 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 get up out of their seat and follow your path or whatever their goals may be. And, and as you say this, I mean, you've got to think about all those kids in Jamaica. Because I'm sure this is going to be mandatory uh, watching for for pretty much all the uh, the, the, the the Jamaican uh, nation and the kids that will react and, and truly believe that anything is possible. So yeah. congratulations on that, man. Uh, did you feel like you were in the best shape of your life going into the uh, the Olympics? I was in the best shape of my life in 2020 when I was climbing mountains. Um, somehow I I built my body into a cardio machine where even though our house sits at seven and a half thousand feet above sea level with 25% less oxygen, I could still finish top 10 in the world in a Peloton class. Now, because I've been predominantly focused on just technique, yes, my strength is better than it was in 2020, but my cardio isn't anywhere where it was like, you know, 18 months ago. So it's interesting how those things, you can't do both so well, right? It's hard to have an incredible cardio machine with all the strength. You guys obviously work really hard on this stuff as SEALs and, and special forces, but I find that it's much easier to kind of specialize in one of those domains. This brings on the question, what's next, dude? Uh, are, do you plan on going back and representing Jamaica at the next Winter Olympics? Yeah, I'm going to be at the next few Olympic Games. Uh, I won't be wearing a race suit. I'll be in a business suit. I plan to become the president of the Jamaican Ski Federation and help the next generation of kids just focus on being an athlete. We know that the best athletes in the world are part, partly there because they have a team of people around them that allow them to just focus on being an athlete. I've had to wear 50 hats to get me to this place today. And that obviously detracts from my time on snow, my efficacy in training. Um, I've already identified three incredible athletes and a half a dozen athletes that could potentially represent us at uh, the 2026 games. I've already identified what will be the biggest story of 2026. I'll just give you a hint. It is Jamaican Alpine ski racing triplets <laughs> who have been ski racing for the last 10 years. They're 14 years old now and have been um, and have been skiing since 18 months of age. And so, yeah, look, I'm going to be involved in this for a long time. I've just become an ambassador for a charity based out of Colorado called SOS Outreach. Uh, over the last 30 years, they've helped 80,000 kids from low-income backgrounds get into winter sports, not just for the joy of sports, but because they believe that you, you can learn leadership skills and life skills by being out there in the mountains. You know, skiing can turn into something life-threatening pretty quickly, right? So there's lots of incredible life skills that are learned from being out there in the mountains. And I'm a big champion of those uh, those types of causes. So a lot of my work over the next few years will be in that direction. Uh, I think it was Sir Edmund Hillary, uh, another UK uh, legend who said, uh, you don't conquer the mountain, you conquer yourself. Yeah. yeah. The, 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 you know, I, personally, I run a program called Into the Wild Extreme where I take business teams into the mountains because, I mean, that's within special operations. That's what we did. It is the most chaotic, uncontrollable environment. I don't care how many years you have mountaineering, 
the nature in the mountain will always teach you something uh, something new. That's uh, uh, couldn't agree more. So with the Federation, I mean, selfless. You're 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 hanging your skis up in 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 essence to push the next generation forward. So it sounds like you are committed for decades to this goal. Um, have you already started the planning of how you're going to approach that? And with Jamaica, I, I, I've got to believe you just mentioned a foundation. I've got to believe funding is a, is prohibitive to being as competitive as they would like to be in the uh, the Olympics. How are you going to tackle that? Yeah, look, that's a great question. What what Jamaica doesn't understand is how powerful the brand of Jamaica is, right? Bob Marley, reggae, cool runnings. I have had no problem raising money to cover my costs, right? Um, I managed to raise more than the Bobset team, and the Bobset team is the continuation of cool runnings. And I've already spoken to the parents of some of these athletes, and within a few phone calls, I promised them I would make them after coming back from the games. Remember, I just got back here 48 hours ago. Um, I assured that I could take $20,000 a year out of his budget. And I, I think they're you know, missing the opportunity that's right in front of them. There's, there's something that I haven't figured out. What is the special source that is attached to Jamaica that just makes everyone on the planet just think of happy things, you know, Bob Marley, Red Stripe, marijuana, sitting on a beach. Um, it's an incredibly marketable um, country as it pertains to winter ath- ath- athletics. So we're going to have no problem raising funding at all, not in the slightest, based on how quickly I've raised money off of the back of my qualification. Um, no problem at all. That's uh, that's amazing. Again, your story uh, is inspiring. I know there's a lot of people that are going to listen to this podcast and hopefully get off the couch uh, who've been delaying to, to uh, pursue their goals. For those listening, what, what is your one piece of advice for anyone trying to pursue an athletic goal or a goal in general? So look, what I want the big takeaway to be is if I can go from zero to Olympians starting at the age of 32, 30 years behind the average skier uh, and, and achieve this level of success just to be able to participate in the Olympics, then you can pick up that book and learn a language. You can get out there and learn to surf, but it's about persevering through the difficult times at the beginning. Anything worth doing is most things worth doing and worth achieving are really hard at the beginning. They are so hard. They're going to make you want to give up every day for, for, for weeks in the row. But once you get past that painful part, then there's so much joy and goodness and fun that, that that's there waiting on the other side. Just got to persevere and have a bit of grit. Couldn't agree more. Uh, if it was easy, more people would do it. Um, but that's what the, the journey is always more powerful than the, uh, the end goal. I'm yeah. sure the last six years has provided a lot more life experience and reflection than actually the, the competition of the Olympic games for you. And, Absolutely. um, you know, the journey is everything, uh, before we say goodbye, we like to end the podcast, uh, with uh, a few of our questions, which again, uh, are hard. You know, these are extremely deep and it goes to what you, the advice you just gave to, to the listeners. But the first one is how is Benjamin Alexander going to measure his life and whether he lived it well? For me, that's a really easy one, but let me answer the one that I postponed on right before the break. Yeah. What is the hardest yeah, yeah, thing yeah. that I've had to face? For me, it was failing at my first university. I went to the Imperial College of Science, Technology and Medicine uh, to study physics um, at the age of 18. And I had no real understanding as to why I was there. It is an incredibly tough uh, course at an incredibly tough uh, university, basically the MIT of England. And I didn't know why I was there, so I didn't have the ability to dig deep and work hard. And I failed. 
And that was the first failure in my life. But as we said right at the start of this podcast, I don't think I would have had such a colorful, varied life um, had I had stayed at that first university. And so incredible things happen from failure. Now back to the, the most recent question, how will I judge myself? Look, I believe that on our deathbed, we want to have a, a, a book filled with all of these incredible chapters of things that we've done. For some people, they are happy to have just one one role in life and you know to, to be a, a banker or a finance person or a doctor, and that's okay. For me, I want to have 10 of these crazy stories, such as getting to the Olympics, such as moving to Asia and living on the other side of the planet, such as being a DJ. And so I've got at least seven more to go. Um, also, as it pertains to people, I always am kind of like caught off guard because I like to be brutally honest. Um, I like to be a, you know, a continuation of being a man of my word. And sometimes that means I upset and offend people because it's just me being honest. As long as people understand that it all comes from a good place and there are not too many people that hate me when I'm on my deathbed, then I'm okay with that. It, we live in a strange world. Uh, you know, coming from the military, I always like directness. Tell me how it is. Don't, don't give me fluff. Let me know how it is and where I need to improve. And, and yeah, I think you said it well. If you know the person is genuine, you know it comes from a good place, uh, even if their delivery may not be tactful or professional, uh, always step back and just listen to what they're saying yeah. uh, and try to process uh, and learn to respond, not to react. Now, for all of us, again, and, and we're all learning on this podcast, you know, we learn until we die. Uh, that's part of the journey. Uh, or the second you think you have it all figured out, that's when you stop growing. What are your rules or, or codes? Uh, your, your key to success is by which uh, you live your life. Holding yourself accountable. Finding a way to hold yourself accountable. Exactly as you said with the bathroom mirror right at the start. And people, it, people don't understand it could be that simple. It could be a couple of words that you see every day. Change your phone lock screen to just show your tasks or your goals for that week or that day. Um, really, that's, that's the biggest thing for me, accountability. Uh, that's, that's such a good one. And, and I think if you define accountability, it's usually an external factor, somebody else holding you accountable. Developing that ability to hold yourself accountable is one of the greatest attributes you, you can uh, develop because then you are self-sufficient. For all the listeners, uh, thanks for listening. Where, where can people follow you? On Instagram, yeah. what, what's your preferred? Instagram is the best one, benji.ski, B-E-N-J-I dot S-K-I. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and pick up a new issue of Men's Journal Magazine. Men's Journal Magazine has features on health and fitness, adventure and travel, style, and my favorite, the coolest gear hitting the market today. Until next time, I'm Mike Sorelli, and thanks for listening.